People notice a healthy smile, but maybe you have tooth sensitivity, bleeding gums, or acid-weakened enamel. Sensodyne, Paradontax, and Pronamel are trusted specialty toothpastes created to help improve your oral health. For tooth sensitivity, choose Sensodyne. Bleeding gums, get Paradontax. For acid-weakened enamel, Pronamel is the toothpaste for you. Sensodyne, Paradontax, and Pronamel. Trusted specialty toothpaste to help bring home your healthy smile. Visit Ibotta to earn cash back. Today's episode of Journey On is a really important one. In this episode, I am talking with James Reyes. James is a sexual abuse survivor and he is a predator. James' story comes to us from Tennessee and he is going to share with us what it has been like for him to be a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and to go on to be um, known as a sexual offender. I think this topic is really important. I think we need to talk about it. In fact, I checked it out with some of our listeners and some of the folks in my support system to say, hey, would this be okay for you to hear on the Journey On podcast? Because we traditionally talk to people who are survivors only. But the fact is there are survivors out there who have gone on to offend and they've gone on to offend and they haven't received the treatment that I think that they need. And James' story is one that is exactly that. Um, James has been in the, the system as a sexual offender and has yet to receive treatment. So, you know, what is preventing him from going back out to reoffend if he has not received treatment? So I want to talk about this and I want us to have a conversation, a dialogue about this. Make sure to send me a message on social media or send me an email at journeyonpodcast at gmail.com. I want to hear your opinions. I want to hear your thoughts and know that I'm not putting this episode out there to cause harm to anyone, but I definitely want us to have a discussion about this because we need to solve the problem and we can't solve the problem if we can't talk about it. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? Uh, sure. Um, my name is James Reyes. I'm from the Middle Tennessee area. And how old are you, James? I'm 38. 38 years old. Okay, and I found your story online just, I believe it was yesterday, and the headline was pretty gripping, um, and I wanted to know a little bit more, but can you tell us uh, how you got to the point where you were being interviewed for the previous podcast, and then tell us about your story. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to. Um, I'm not sure exactly how far back you want me to go, but to kind of give you the, the nutshell uh, synopsis of it, uh, I personally was, was sexually abused as a child. Uh, went on for, uh, it had to be between five to six years uh, that occurred, starting around the age four to five, up until somewhere around 11 or 12. Um, obviously, when a child gets abused at that age, it, it really messes with them, um, causes, what, I guess, what, what, what therapists might call a, a deviant sexuality at times. Obviously, it doesn't happen with everybody, but that can be a result from it. Um, and that's not to, not to blame that entirely, but really, and I'm sorry, I know you're going to be editing this. I am, today has been an emotional day for me, so I am having a little bit of a hard time, so I'm putting my words together. I but, truly understand that. Yeah, but it really did uh, it cause quite a bit of, uh, of damage in me. Um, I First, it kind of manifested really in, in an eating problem. When I was uh, four years old, I was your normal-sized child, and by the time I was either five or six, 
uh, I basically doubled in size, and it was just a, a struggle throughout my childhood. Um, flash forward to quite a bit later. In my late teens, I developed uh, a very heavy Internet pornography addiction. Uh, this was right around the time that the Internet kind of came into uh, fruition. It was, it was kind of, I guess you could say, the, the nascent days of, of the Internet and still dial up, but um, that's when I discovered Internet pornography. And that strangely satiated the need within me that I think had been caused by some of that abuse. So that stayed with me for quite a number of years. It stayed with me throughout uh, time at college, throughout even meeting my, my wife-to-be, uh, pretty much in, into my entire adult life. Basically then, in 2009, I uh, had gotten just desensitized to regular pornography. Uh, to me, Internet pornography is, is a drug that the more you do it, the more used to it you get and the less effect it has on you. So I basically discovered for the first time underage or child pornography. I uh, happened across it by ac uh, accident, by happenstance. However, it actually put a thrill in me that I hadn't had in quite a long time. Um, it, it really... Um, I hadn't felt anything for a long time, and, and I mean in any sort of way. So that actually provided that thrill for me. It was very secretive. So uh, that developed a basically an interest in, in child pornography. And from that point, basically, flash for another few years, and uh, I, I don't want to go into lurid details because obviously right. it, it can be triggers for someone who might hear. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the podcast itself. But it, it ended up being where I... Uh, was arrested for solicitation of a minor and aggravated attempted aggravated sexual uh, battery of a minor. Um, I thank God that it never went to the point where I actually ended up uh, touching a child, uh, but it, it got to the point where I did get arrested and, and did uh, face criminal charges for that. And when they came to arrest me for that, they actually took my home computer as well. When they took my home computer, I obviously had several inches of child pornography on there, so I got arrested, or I guess additional charges for that, uh, in addition to the in-person victim. There were the victims of the child pornography. And, and that is one thing I, I want to caveat and say very clearly right now that I've come to realize, and I think is very important, is to really uh, stress the fact that just because a, you know, in child pornography it's on in-person victim, that those children are victims nonetheless. You know, right. and I think that that's glossed over quite a bit, and, and people try to minimize the fact that, oh, it was only child pornography. Well, obviously, you're looking at, at pictures of, of molestation and of a child being abused, so uh, that that is they're just as much a victim and get re-victimized every time. But um, So I, I then did one year in uh, uh, institution, in jail, and was released on 10 years' worth of uh, probation. At that point, I moved from the Nashville, Tennessee area to California to where my wife's family was and was there for about six months when, um, to my shame, I say this now, but I had, when I'd gotten out of jail and, and had been at a very low, low point, I'd gotten back into the child pornography. Uh, I had a surprise visit by a probation officer and a team that uh, found the iPad that I thought I'd kept hidden and found the pornography on that, and I got new charges there in California and did a year time uh, in California as well. Now, prior to those new charges, I had tried to maintain with my family that I had been innocent. Um, and so obviously I wasn't getting the, the help I needed in therapy and in counseling. But um, after that, of course, I couldn't try to try to maintain that, that innocence any longer. So uh, due to that, due to my actions, uh, my wife and I did divorce. 
uh, and I did spend that one year of time in a California institutional uh, correctional facility. The day that I paroled from California, I was basically picked up by a transport company uh, sent by the county locally here in Tennessee that I originally had my charges in uh, on the accounts of violating the probation I had been on. Um, now, I, I will say, granted, I very much obviously needed to face those charges and understand that. But I will say for everyone out there and anyone who has been um, – Anyone who's been through one of those transport companies, that's the way that prisoners are transported interstate was honestly just inhumane. And, and I'm just saying that because I, I really think that there needs to be awareness on that issue, but it was a horrendous journey. I'm an insulin-dependent uh, insulin diabetic. It took them eight days to get from California to Tennessee. Uh, we were all over the nation. On day two, they broke my insulin vial, so I didn't have insulin for almost a full week. Ended up in the hospital, and... Um, you're basically riding in a van. You don't have access to any sort of showering facilities. You you basically are just, you don't have access to any sort of hygienic facilities. So I, I got a really bad staph infection. And the trip itself is, is in complete darkness. It's in a prison van that is completely blacked out. So you have no clue of the time or of the day or anything. So uh, anyway, I then came back here, got back here to, to Tennessee, um, and uh, faced, you know, uh, was incarcerated, uh, then bailed out and prepared for my trial. That happened on the 24th of March. Uh, during that time, my uh, mother, who is supporting me 100%, um, and I had located the only facility that we could find in America that specifically was an inpatient minimum security treatment facility for sexual offenders. They didn't treat sex addicts. Um, as you know, that's a whole actually other other um, ball game, sexual addiction and, and sexual offenses are obviously not the same thing. So with the specialized treatment needed for sex uh, offenders, this was the only inpatient uh, facility that we were able to find in the nation at all. So we were actually able to secure a expert to come down from that facility uh, to here to uh, basically talk about the program, to uh, go over statistics, to let them know that I had been accepted into the program. Um, unfortunately, the judge decided that um, he didn't want to release me to the program and said I was going to go and face uh, part of that incarceration time. So right now I'm looking at, at six years' worth of incarceration um, as due to the original charge. And, again, I very much want to state I am not trying to say that things are unfair. Um, I'm not trying to minimize anything with, with someone who's a sexual offender, uh, obviously there are consequences to our actions. Um, my mom, who, again, I mentioned was very supportive of me, was just completely flabbergasted that I was not allowed to go to, to treatment. So she ended up contacting uh, the media, and that is how the um, first podcast and story had, had come to fruition. Wow. That's, that's a story for sure. It's, uh, <laughs> it is. It's all over the place. Right. So much yes, has sir. happened in your life that uh, contributed to to the crimes that you committed and to the to the upcoming jail sentence. Right. Um, Very much so. Wow. I, I, I want to go back and I want to learn more about what happened when you were younger and if there has been some work around that early trauma 
because that's something that's important for us as survivors to work on or we will continue to be in pain and when we're in pain we run the risk of hurting others you know that that's very true i know especially in your line of work you've always heard that hurt people hurt people you know and, and i agree with you that that's 100 percent true um None of the, it was three separate people who had abused me as a child. Um, none of them have ever faced formal charges or convictions. So therefore, you know, I'm, I'm not really, just for liability's sake, not going to mention specifically who they were. But uh, it was three separate individuals, and it did occur for, for quite a bit of time uh, during my childhood itself. And honestly, when you're that young, it's, it severely altered and skewered my view, view of sexuality. And... Again, there are so many, um, even as, as you stated on, on some of the statistics on your site, that, that um, you know, there are an amazing amount uh, of even boys that are, that are physically and sexually abused. And I know the vast majority of them do not end up becoming sexual offenders. Uh, and I don't want to, to make it sound like I'm saying that, that one plus one is equal to, that sexual uh, abuse as a child equals a sexual offender. That, that would obviously be a very unfair blanket statement to make. But... I know it definitely was a contributing factor to, to the path I went on. Sure. There's a lot of contributing factors. Um, so this abuse is happening to you, and I'm assuming at your age, um, did you know what was happening was abuse? No, and I didn't. I didn't at the time. And one thing that, that was very confusing for me was that as I got older into my preteen, early, I guess it would be preteen, it was right before I became a teenager that the abuse stopped. But, um, you know, at that point in your life, especially at that age, there are going to be hormonal reactions. Your body's going to react to something regardless of whether it's, it's desired. So that really caused a lot of, of guilt in me as well. You know, children are so self-centered, uh, and, and that's just reality. Man. I'm not saying that in a negative way, but children are so self-centered, everything's about them, that obviously in my mind, what was happening was caused by me. And I didn't realize that it was something wrong. I didn't like it, I, I, but I, I just didn't understand it to be abuse as we understand today. Um, one thing is that, you know, when you're a child, you're always taught the famous phrase, stranger danger. But none of these were strangers. You know, these were all people ingratiated within my, my circle. It was no one just out of the blue. It was someone random at a park. So... Yeah, it, it very much was, was something unfathomable to me. And I think the majority of time it does happen uh, by people we know, people who are already in our lives, whether that's a parent, a, a coach, a, a priest, um, a sibling. Um, these are all the stories I've heard and have experienced myself. So I, I truly understand and have empathy for you and your situation. Um because it has left uh, uh, devastating uh, consequences for you. It, it really has. It, it's, it's obviously devastated my life, but more so is the collateral damage. And, and I shouldn't even call it that because it sounds like I'm, I'm making light of it, but it really, the, the impact to my ex-wife, uh, my gosh, to my mom, who has literally sacrificed everything. And um, you would be amazed at what she has done to try to get me help from writing to, to governors and public officials and uh, famous celebrity TV doctors, uh, not to mention any names, but all sorts of, I mean, from local government on up, uh, she has done her best to try to get help from me because, um, DJ, I'll be honest, 
there is not a lot of rehabilitative help available for someone who is a sexual offender. And one thing you pointed out earlier was that one something I never got to was the root cause, which was that abuse that, that had never been addressed in my own life. Um, in any sort of correctional facility that I've been in, either in Tennessee or in California, there's a multitude of programs and offerings to assist people who have drug problems, who have problems with alcohol, who even maybe have problems with domestic abuse. They're in there for beating their spouse or for abusing their children physically. But there's absolutely nothing made available to anyone who is in there for a sexual deviancy or for being a sexual offender or even who is acting out because they've been sexually offended against in the past. Um, that is just honestly woefully lacking. And the one thing that I really, the reason I want to share my story is I want transparency to be out there as much as possible so that it would be beautiful if it gets to the point where even if someone who's young, who's a teenager, starts to have any sort of sexually deviant thoughts, that they have a safe place they can go so we don't have sexual offenders in the future. I'm not trying to make laws easier for sexual offenders. I realize that there obviously has to be strict control over that population, but it would be great to have preventative measures so that we don't have people falling into that and so that children aren't victimized and hurt in the future. I agree with you 100%. I 100% agree. Uh, we need more services. We need uh, more people to stand up and show up uh, for the survivors of these heinous crimes because maybe we can prevent uh, future crimes from happening. And, you know, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is to continue to, to have the discussion. We need to have a discussion. We need more people to know what's going on. So sure. you mentioned that you've had some therapy. Um, was Would you say that any of that was helpful? Well, there's, there's two types of therapy that are available. Um, the first is going to be the, the state-mandated therapy. Um, and I understand the purpose of it. I do understand that they have it because uh, it's obviously necessary for them to be able to say to the public, look, we're providing this extra um, step, this extra bit of oversight, this extra uh, service to, to keep the community safe. Um, however, unfortunately, it, it just is not going to be, at least for me, I'm going, to, I'm going to contextualize this within my own experience. For me, it was not effective because it is a group setting. Um, so there's anywhere from 12 to 15 plus men in a circle. Uh, it's an hour a week. And th there's just absolutely no time to, to get into that. You know, as a survivor yourself, the, the deep-rootedness of the issue, it takes a lot of intense one-on-one -on -one therapy. And that's, that's not something that, that can be managed or dealt with in a, in a one hour a week session. Absolutely. Um, not. So that's, it, it really can't. And again, like I said, I want to contextualize that within my own experience because um, other people may have different experiences, but that, that is what I found. The other option that's available is, of course, private therapy, but it becomes a catch 22. Uh, private therapy can obviously be very expensive. And if you're a, social, uh, a sexual offender, your job and income options are very limited, if there are any at all. So you have the catch-22 of someone who can't afford therapy but needs it. Um, there are some, some great local nonprofits that do offer counseling and, and that type for people who, uh, you know, on a sliding scale, that see, I mean, I'm sorry, that is uh, based on your income, uh, and those are great. But, I mean, there's only so many of those resources. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that there's got to be something better than what we're doing already. Right. Yeah. 
and and maybe by hearing your message and and our stories uh, those programs can be created and you're right about the the lack of uh, availability of services for sex offenders you know as a as a treatment provider you know there was a, a one time in my practice where the lease that I had signed uh, said I could not see sex offenders in the building. So yeah, there are sometimes I, I there are sometimes those stipulations that we as professionals have to abide by. Therefore, lack of resources prov- available to the population. Sure, and and DJ, the, the, honestly, the, the balancing that comes from the difficult part is balancing the legitimate need for the security of, of the community. Um, obviously, that has to be first and foremost, uh, and, and, and I don't think anyone can deny that. Um, uh, the Stopping victimization has to be their the first and foremost goal, but unfortunately, with that comes a lot of, um, I don't want to call it red tape, but like you said, regulations as to uh, the assistance that someone who's truly trying to get help can receive. You know, I, I do understand that obviously the, the public needs to know that that law enforcement is taking this as serious as possible and, and that as many preventative measures are put in place as possible. But it does come to a point where there are some things that are prohibitive for someone who really does want change and outside assistance in being able to, to uh, get healthy. Yeah, and, and my strong belief is that um, uh, incarceration is not treatment. And if we're going to incarcerate people who were once abused themselves, we got to provide treatment. We have to provide some type yeah. of treatment. I, I mean, I 100% agree with you because, you know, regardless of the fact that I was abused, I broke the law. And there are consequences that come with that. That is 100% obvious. And in no way, shape, or form can I blame my own previous um, sexual abuse as a child to the fact that I broke the law in, in a very egregious manner. I mean, it's not something as small as like a speeding ticket. It, it was very, you know, what is probably the most stigmatized and hated crime in America. However, on the flip side of that, while I agree with you, incarceration, you know, is a factor in there. It, it doesn't, you're right, there is no rehabilitative portion of that. And I think the recidivism of sexual offenders could be so affected if there was a good program in place in a safe environment in the prison system. Um, as you know, in the prison system, obviously, uh, sex offenders are not even on the, the pole. They're, they're below the pole. They're the most probably extorted and abused uh, population within prison because, you know, everyone needs someone to look down upon. I, I hate to say that, but I think that's just human nature. Everyone needs someone that's lower than themselves that they can look at and say, look, I'm not that bad. Um, and so it, it's not a safe environment in prison. In fact, a lot of sex offenders tend to get more uh, reticent and closed in because you don't want people to know about you. You don't want your secret to get out. You, you live in fear every day. So it, it's almost a um, such a stressful environment that literally the last time it came out, I felt uh, very light uh, tremors of almost PTSD. Uh, I, even to this day, I'm still very agoraphobic just even leaving my house. If I'm going to be transparent, I, I hate even going to Walmart. Uh, just because of that constant fear I lived in. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes, you know, we hear about sex offenders being assaulted sexually in prison. And so here you are, 
here for someone who was, uh, you know, not, not you specifically, but someone who may have been abused as a child who goes on to offend and is then assaulted in the prison system where they're supposed to be rehabilitated. Um, it just sounds really fucked up. It, it, it really, it, it truly is because it is, if there's one thing that would cause such a schism in someone's already fragile, you know, psyche is something that someone who had been abused and because of that then turned around and acted as an abuser, to get further abused would only, any progress they had made would just send them straight back. And, and I knew of people that that happened to. Um, and unfortunately, the person who does, especially if it's a sexual offender who gets abused in prison, they're more the ones who's going to get moved who's going to be put into some place segregated and separate and, for lack of a better term, just completely isolated instead yeah. of the abuser themselves. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I, and I hope that that's not something that you have to encounter um, as you're facing, the, what, six more years in, in jail, in prison, really. Um, sure. And you've already had two, is that correct? You've been in there two years. And now you're going back years. for an additional six. Well, and, and six years is the length of term, um, but I, I might be up eligible for parole earlier than that. But I, I don't know. I, I really have no clue what um, what the plans of God are. I, I will say of one thing, I have had a, a, a very strong faith since I was a child. Obviously, I didn't walk according to that for a, a good portion of my life. Um, I let the demons inside of me win instead of letting... Um, you know, too, too many times I've seen people who are, especially in prison for sex crimes, all of a sudden find God, find religion. Um, and while I think that that can be a therapeutic factor, you obviously need something more than that. And to them, that is their only uh, source of any sort of, uh, of uh, rehabilitative therapy. Uh, but I know that's going to be a tool for me uh, as I go into that. And I'm honestly not worried. I'm not scared of going into prison. I'm not looking forward to it. I'm more am, am sad about leaving my family, leaving my mom, uh, my wonderful little blessing of a dog who has kept me alive the last couple of years. Uh, I, I am unhappy about that. But if in me sharing my testimony can be a light of any kind uh, while I am incarcerated, if there's anyone in there who's in a similar position that I can provide hope for, uh, all for the ultimate point of hoping someone can get therapy and not reoffend to not have another victim, then it's a hundred percent worthwhile. Wow. Pretty impactful statement there. I'm curious if you consider yourself a, a sex addict. Yes, I, I definitely do. Um, and in fact, I would say that that would be for lack of a better term. I don't want to use, I mean, I know in medical jargon, but I would say almost a, a comorbidity mm-hmm. to go along with, with, with the sexual offending. Um, Yes, definitely a sex addict, and I think very much that stems from, again, uh, the pornography addiction, uh, the risky sexual behavior. I mean, you know, all the classic signs. Sure. Yeah. Obviously so. And, I, and hear I, that, I think I hear that very often. Oh, with, with sex offenders? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I definitely... Go ahead. No, I definitely think that, that sexual addiction is... I'm not going to say it's the root, but it's a very much a symptom of that deviant sexuality, you know? And I, I've known sex offenders who are also drug addicts. I think that it expresses itself more than one way. Oh, absolutely. It's the whack-a-mole principle. 
you know. <laughs> That's a good way to put one, it. You knock one down, another one comes up. Uh, sure. The fact is, I hear, uh, you know, you said something earlier in your share about how you were watching pornography and then you started noticing that you were looking for more exciting and, and tantalizing images. And that is like a hallmark for someone who is addicted. You know, we keep searching out for something greater to give us a, a greater high. And the fact is, we won't ever get that original high back. And so we're just pursuing no. this, you know, this this false uh, belief that we're, there's something better on the other side. And then we get tricked and um, we fall, you know, some of us fall down the hole into really dark places. Yeah, very, very dark places. And you're 100% right on that. There, see, I, I think, at least for me, the sexual addiction was trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And well, and, and I, I think that's what I was trying to do. And I think it's very similar to any drug addict, why so many people escalate in their drug use. Because, again, it, it's it, whether it's sex, whether it's some sort of uh, narcotic, whether or not it's alcohol, you become desensitized and need more. So, like you said, it's that classic, and it's a cycle of, of that sexual addiction during that, that first ritualistic phase, the hunting, the, the gathering, the, the ritual of it that I think is the most um, placating to someone who is a sexual addict, and then the complete despair after the act is done just further leads you to, to start the cycle all over again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and so uh, I want to ask this. Have any of your treatment providers been uh, specialists in the areas of sex offender and uh, sex offending behaviors or sexual addiction or other process addictions? Um, the the ones that we see for the state man mandated counseling are uh, licensed to uh, provide therapy to sexual offenders. So, uh, yes, that is very, very true. And then the also the therapist that I have recently been seeing privately at a local non-for-profit uh, mental health organization uh, specializes in sexual addiction. Okay, good. I'm glad. Have you been a 12-step? No, no, I haven't. And um, it's odd because within the, the, the area of sexual offense, there's actually a bit of a divide over whether or not a 12-step is beneficial for a sexual offender, uh, primarily for the portion of the 12-step where you have to admit that you're powerless over your addiction. Um, and that's not something that a lot of the sexual offender therapists are comfortable putting onto someone who is a sexual offender because they want them to be responsible for, for that. So, I mean, I understand the dichotomy of both sides, uh, but no, I personally have never done a 12-step program. And I'll, t I'll say this, uh, being powerless over an addiction does not mean you're not responsible for the consequences of your behavior. And that's what I get out of the 12-step. I've been in 12-step for almost five years now in multiple programs. And I know people who are sexual offenders who benefit from going to 12-step meetings, primarily like Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous or Sex Addicts Anonymous. Um, I think you could get help there as well. And so I would encourage you to, to if you ever get an opportunity, to check that out. I will be very transparent with you also. I, I did attempt uh, to begin attending a SAA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, mm -hmm. uh, Sexaholics Anonymous, I'm sorry, uh, meeting, but was told by my 
supervising authority here, because obviously I'm under probation, that that wasn't allowed. Uh, they, they can, I don't know, I can't tell you what the length of the power or what the limit of the power is, but uh, can direct the type of therapy that you can get. So that's another problem is that sometimes even if you do want to get that extra therapy or go to the meeting like I did, um, someone who is a sexual offender uh, who is having to follow uh, the guidelines of whether it be probation or parole, whoever the governing authority is, sometimes you're not even allowed to do that. Yeah. Ah, oh, man. I hate to hear that. I really do. Um, but you know what? In prison, there may have some, um, some 12-step programs in prison. And even if it's not specific to sexual behavior, I'd recommend you go because, you know, the one thing that I have learned about the 12 steps is that the steps are the steps. And you can substitute alcohol for drugs, substitute that for sex, substitute that for food, gambling, whatever. The 12 steps will get you through just about anything. That's my experience, my personal opinion. Well, and if you even if you just look at the evidence of, of how many lives have been changed through something like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, obviously they're doing something right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, uh, what are the things you have learned about yourself through all of this? Um, I learned I'm a lot more broken than I had originally thought. Mm. Um, I learned that I am not as much in, in control as I had thought I was originally. I am a person that likes to be in control uh, to the point of manipulation. I mean, if you think of, of exactly the, the cognitive um, distortions that anyone who is an addict has, I, I fell into quite a few of them. Um, but it's been a, a very revealing look at myself. Uh, that I am completely unable to manage this on my own. Um, I've learned something else, uh, and it's one thing that I, I take from the uh, verbiage of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, but uh, a, you know, someone who is a recovering alcoholic is always a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, even if they've been sober 30, 40 years, they're always a recovering alcoholic. Um, I, don't, I can't say, and I don't think, and, and right now my own personal belief is, uh, sexual offending is not something necessarily that can be healed um, because it's something that's broken innate within someone's nature, but it's something that someone can be equipped with the tools to manage, to mitigate, and to control. Um, and it's something that, that I know will require my vigilance. Um, I need to be smart going into the future. My biggest thing was humorous. was a lot of pride. Uh, I thought that I could handle things on my own. I thought I could be above the law. I thought I could manipulate my way out of any situation. So having those facts come crashing down around me has probably been the, the most eye-opening aspect of this entire journey. My hope for you is that you get to heal. You get to be on the path of healing because it sounds like that process has been interrupted multiple times. And I understand why. And that doesn't mean that it's right. Yes, you may you have committed crimes, and yes, there there has to be a punishment. But I strongly believe there has to be treatment too. And my hope is that you will get on a path of healing, because it is important for you and for all of us to be on that path of healing. Because what happened to us was not our fault. 
but we are responsible for what we do as a result of what happened to us. And so I, I encourage you to, to do what you can to heal. That is, that is very much my hope as well. Um, if anything less, or, or if anything, you know, definitely I don't want any sort of future victim, and whether that be a victim of in-person or uh, as my den tend to be, you know, online, uh, the, the child pornography. I mean, that, I, I, I don't have a place for that anymore. So thank you. I really, the, the future healing is, I guess, the largest part of my journey. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any words of encouragement to our listeners who may find themselves in a similar predicament? Um, yes, I, w- I would actually probably section them to, to three different people. Um, the first is uh, a man who is a survivor of sexual abuse. Um, I think one thing you said, and I think it has to be stressed so many times, is we have to absolutely understand it was in no way our fault. Um, and I think that that's, that is such a hard concept sometimes to grasp. And if due to someone's sexual abuse, or even if someone wasn't sexually abused, and just notices that they have what what we identify as a deviant sexuality, whether that be something like uh, an attraction toward children or anything that it might manifest as, I just would beg you to please seek out help before you become a sexual offender um, in, in whatever way that you can seek out help, preferably through a mental health professional. But if that is not available, then some sort of um, pastoral counsel, religious counsel, whatever your faith system may be. Uh, so that would be the, probably the first group I would say something to. Um, the second would be to the loved ones of that person. Um, you know, one of the things that kept me in secret and hiding for so long was the fear I was going to lose everything. Um, so what someone who is so brave and courageous enough to make that step needs is, is support and encouragement from those around them. Um, just be careful that it's not enabling. In other words, if, if there has been a crime committed against a child, you can't excuse that. That can't be dealt with. It has to be dealt with in, in, in the correct manner. That's not something that can be swept under the rug. But if it's someone who's struggling, who hasn't acted out, or who even has a pornography addiction, or, or just is suffering from severe depression because of their abuse as a child, what they need is support, to know that they have a safe, secure environment. Um, last, for me personally, one, one of my goals is to help bring a light to this subject within the, the realm of faith, uh, within religious institutions, specifically uh, churches, and, um, well, even if it's churches, whether it not be a mosque, whether it be temples, whatever it might be, but my, my faith would be, obviously, the Christian faith in, in churches, that leadership really educate themselves on this. This is not something that is going to go away. Uh, people who need help might come to a pastor, might come to a church leader, and that person needs to be prepared. This, this needs to be something that they know how to be able to, to deal with and to minister to that person and get them the help they need. Uh, and they also need to know that it's not something that can be handled just through religious counseling, that they're going to need something, something additional to that. So if the church could provide a safe place, if the home can be a safe place, and I think it would provide opportunity for people who are struggling with this type of issue to get help before someone else is hurt. Powerful word, James. Very powerful. I want to take this time to, to, to really thank you for being willing to, to come onto the show and be vulnerable. 
uh, and put your story out there. Um, as someone who has also put his story out there, I know how challenging that can be. And, you know, I, I can only imagine what it's like to say to the world, I am a criminal, but I also was abused. Um, and to let go of what everyone might think about you for, for being someone who has broken the law, but to, to really put your story out there, um, it's powerful. It's just truly powerful. Um, I am so glad that I was able to, to hear your story and to, to witness this part of your journey because I strongly believe that there's more to come for you. And my hope is that you, you do your time and then you get out and you create a life for yourself that's full of healing. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, DJ. Thank you for providing the platform. Um, and for the work you are doing in that. And right, it's difficult, but if it can help one person, then I guess, as you know, it's worthwhile. That's why I do it. Yep. So, James, so you're headed off to uh, – your mom made mention that you, I guess the, that you were being picked up tomorrow. Is that accurate? Um, yes, it's, it's possible. I am supposed to report to the, the probation office tomorrow at 8 a.m., uh, what the outcome of that will be, I don't know, but it's very possible that uh, tomorrow I will be reporting into the correctional facility. Okay. Well, I wish you luck. Thank and, you. And um, I hope you stay safe, and I hope you get the help that you need. And thank you for sharing your story with all of us. Not a problem. Thank you again for your time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Journey On. I truly appreciate the effort that James made to come on to our show and be authentic and transparent. Um, the topic isn't easy to talk about. It's not easy to, to listen to. So I advise that you take care of yourself today, spend some good quality time engaging in self-care behaviors, and make sure that you are talking to others in your recovery circle. And if you don't have a circle, you got to find one. You don't have to do this in isolation. But if anything that was brought up in today's show was triggering for you, you gotta talk about it. Don't keep it bottled up inside. I appreciate you keep coming back every week and listening to the stories that we have for you each week on Journey On. Next week is a special episode as well, as we're going to be talking to James's mom. She wanted to come onto the show and share her experience of supporting her son as he goes through this transition. So I agreed to, to hear her story because I think it is important to hear from our families too about what they have experienced as they are uh, coming to, uh, to awareness about what has happened to us. So tune in next week and we'll listen to James's mom's story. And after that, we'll have one more episode before we go on hiatus. So stay tuned for the season finale of Journey On in two weeks. There's a new tool available to all you Journey On followers. It's Journey On Survivors, a private Facebook group for survivors to network, build support, and to discuss all things Journey On. You can find the link on our homepage, journeyonpod.com, or link directly to it by going to bit.ly slash journeyonsurvivors. I'll be on the group to answer any questions or to provide support. Check us out. That's bit.ly slash journeyonsurvivors or search journeyonsurvivors on Facebook.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Journey On. It can be challenging to face the trauma of your past, and I commend you for being willing. Journey on with us by subscribing to this podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Follow me on my new social media handles, at DJBurr1022 on Facebook and Twitter, and at TheDJBurr on Instagram. Journey On is looking to hear from you. If you're interested in sharing your experience, strength, and hope with our audience, email us at journeyonpodcast at gmail.com. Journey On is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's music features tracks by CDK. Until next time, breathe deep and journey on. You've worked so hard for all the things you have, the salary, the status, the success. And with that image, there's a drink, one to unwind, one to loosen up, one to take the edge off. But how do you know when a drink is more than just a drink? We get it. We can help. Karen's Grandview program has been helping accomplished people just like you regain their lives. Talk to us. Visit karen.org slash grandview. Roofers, are you tired of using a bunch of selling tools that don't talk to each other? Streamline your selling process with GAF Project. Manage leads, measurements, presentations, estimates, even payments right on your iPad. Visit gaf.com project.